sermon series continues tonight with John chapter 18. It is dark. The disciples have fled. Jesus has been led, hands tied behind his back through the winding streets of Jerusalem to the house of Annas, who is the father-in-law of the high priest, Caiaphas. Now remember, it was Caiaphas who reminded, accidentally prophesying, that it would be better than one man should die for the people. John and Peter follow at a distance. John knows somebody in the house who lets him into the outer court, and and then John pulls our attention to two events happening at the same time. There are two interrogations going on here. One, Jesus being interrogated by the high priest, and the second is the interrogation of Peter outside in the courtyard. Jesus had earlier foretold Peter's betrayal of him, and now that betrayal, that denial of Jesus is coming true. As John brings him into the courtyard, the servant girl who's watching the door says, are you not one of his disciples? And Peter says, I am not. That I am ought to be ringing in our ears last week or just an hour ago in our text We see Jesus making this great confession, I am. Jesus is, and Peter is not. The text then leaves us there with Peter warming himself by the fire, directs our attention back into the house. Jesus answers Annas' questions by indicating that he is always taught in public, that he has no secret teachings, One of the officers strike him on the face, the first of many blows that Jesus is going to receive this evening, and not the first of many blows that he will not deserve. Jesus asked what was wrong with the statement. If what I said was wrong, bear witness about the wrong. If what I said was true, why do you see the need to hit me? Boom, back out into the courtyard. Peter standing there warming himself against the fire, You are also not one of his disciples, he says. Peter says, I'm not. He's getting irritated, frustrated, uncomfortable. A relative of the man, Malchus, the dude of whom Peter tried to lop his head off, continues to prod. He's like, did I not see you out there in the garden? Like with a sword swinging around. Again, third time Peter denies it. He denies Jesus and the rooster crows. Now, in the other Gospels, tells that peace that Peter is, is cursing and he's vehemently denying Jesus. But here, at this exact moment of his third and most fervent denial, three things happen. The rooster crows. Jesus turns and looks at Peter. Peter remembers the prediction of his denial. He knows that he's undone. He knows that he's become unraveled. He begins to weep bitterly, and he flees out of the gate into the night. John, who witnesses these events, is is much calmer. He's, he's, He's better with Peter. He simply writes, Peter denied it again, and at once the rooster crowed. So that's our setting with these two interrogations. So we have two interrogations, one that that comfort us and confront us. First is Peter's. Peter has gone from napping to swinging swords to fleeing out into the night crying, 
and, and almost a matter of, of no time at all. He has run away with John, but yet he has gained his wits. He has stirred up his courage, and he has gone almost right into the belly of the beast to see what's going on with Jesus. He was shaken, unsteady, and nervous, maybe had drops of Malchus's blood still upon his robes. He wanted to know what was going on with Jesus, but he certainly didn't want to be known as one of Jesus' disciples. It was just too much of a risk. And once Peter is uncovered as a secret follower of Jesus, he turned tail and run. There's something about Peter that makes those who have been gathered together to question him. And maybe it was just simply the fact that nobody really knew who he was. The only one who had vouched for him was John. He had a look, an accent, a nervousness. The servant girl at the door had already recognized him. The people standing by the fire in the night had recognized him. The relative of Malchus had recognized him. That would terrify me. Are you not one of this man's disciples? And we wonder what would have happened if he would have owned up to that. If he would have bowed up and, and had some courage about him and said, Yes, I, I am one of this man's disciples. He has done nothing wrong. Would they have arrested him? Would they have dragged him in the house and made him say things? Would they have made him just simply testify as to what he had seen and heard? Would they have called on him to make a statement? Would he have been bound and, and led away to Pilate as well? Would they have crucified Peter alongside Jesus Christ? Well, we're never going to know. Because it didn't happen. There is a temptation there to fear death. This is where Peter fails. Hebrews chapter 2 warns us about this. It's a beautiful and a comforting text, but it has a warning for us. Chapter, or verse 14. Since therefore the children share in the flesh and the blood, he himself likewise shares in the same. Just as we have a body, Jesus has assumed our human nature, flesh and blood, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death over us. That is the devil. <clears throat> that's, part of his, that's part of his power, is that threat of death. I can do something to you. I can hurt you. I can take your life away. The devil <clears throat> tells us that he has the power over the death, but Jesus' death has broken the devil's destruction over that power. The power of death is over. It can, no longer, it can no longer be wielded against us. I mean, Satan can threaten our death, but that death no longer has any, it doesn't have any meaning. It doesn't have any power over us anymore. Jesus delivers those who fear death out of their fear of death, and we're no longer subject to that fear. Jesus' suffering releases us from bondage. But this is a very specific bondage. It is a bondage from our fear of death. And here's where we must pay careful attention. If we're afraid to die, the devil still holds us in that bondage. He can use it against us. And he will use it against us, just as he uses it against Peter here. Peter is afraid of suffering and dying and death and crucifixion for the most part, he's kind of afraid of not knowing what's going to happen. He's afraid of being found out. 
Are you one of his disciples? Mm-mm. Not me. Not me, I tell you. Peter becomes a fearful and a faithless witness. He's interrogated and he fails the interrogation. Jesus uses as Peter's failure to teach about humility and the blessings of forgiveness later. Because Jesus goes out of his way to find Peter later on the shores of Galilee. He reinstates him. He is resurrected from the grave and goes to Peter and asks him, Peter, do you love me? Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. He says it again. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. And he, he says it a third time. I mean, it's almost agonizing to read. But there's, there's three denials. All three of those denials are covered up with a profession of faith and love and Jesus receives that repentance and reinstates him. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter confesses three times and is restored. And in his repentance, he is forgiven. He is placed into the preaching office, forgiven of his sins, and then sent out into the world to go and tell everybody else about this great gift of the forgiveness of sins that the Lord God has provided for you and for all men. And while Peter's weakness and failing is put on, on view as an example for all of us, it's also a warning. You too, you too can be interrogated. Are you a Christian? Are you one of these guys' disciples? And that confession may be costly. We see this in the second interrogation of Jesus before Annas. The stakes were also high. This is why Jesus has come. This is exactly why Jesus has come right here for this hour is to ask to give an account of his teachings and his disciples, his reply. He taught nothing in private or in secret. He was in the temple where everybody could hear what he had to say. No doubt Annas and those gathered around there that night, they'd had many occasions to hear what Jesus said. Either they heard it with their own eyes or they got the reports from the spies that they sent to, to ask him the question. He does not make an argument for his innocence. He doesn't make an argument at all. It's rather strange that in Jesus, Jesus who is so masterful at taking arguments and turning them on their heads and sending them back at the accuser, in this case, he doesn't do it. He's not gonna make any defense at all. He doesn't turn the tables. He doesn't ask them for, for the witnesses. He's like a lamb who is silent before the shearers. He does not open his mouth. He is the righteous one of God. He does not claim that righteousness for himself. He is the innocent one, but he does not defend himself. He has no guilt of his own within him. And the reason he can't make a defense for himself is because he's literally carrying the guilt of the world upon his shoulders. And so he doesn't need to make a defense. So Jesus stands in this earthly courtroom 
and does not defend himself. Why does he not defend himself? So that he can later stand in a heavenly courtroom and defend you. John chapter 2, verse 1. We have an advocate with God the Father, and that is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Jesus, before Annas, reminds us of the comfort that Jesus has before the Father. You might be interrogated for your faith here on earth, and we pray that you will have faith and courage to confess the Lord Jesus, but you will not be interrogated in heaven. On the judgment day, there will not be any interrogation of you. There will be no investigation into your works. There will be no, no exploration into your sin or your righteousness. For your Lord Jesus Christ speaks for you. Jesus stands in your place and he speaks for you. And he promises, most assuredly I say unto you, you who hear my word and believe that he who sent me has everlasting life. He shall not come into judgment, but he has passed from death into life. This life everlasting that we talk about is already your present possession based upon your faith in Jesus Christ, the righteous one of God. Jesus goes to court, but like everything he does, he does so for your benefit. The Holy One of God stands in your place. He stands in the place of sinners, suffering our guilt so that he can stand before the throne of God and be an advocate for you to be an advocate for Peter and for me and for all of you. The great I am denies to defend himself so that he can defend you, so that he can forgive you, to cover your shame with his blood, to cover your guilt with his suffering. And this is why Jesus is interrogated. He says nothing before those who accuse him of all sorts of things so that he can make your defense. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.